Welcome to Civil War Talk Radio with host Jerry Prokopovich. Our program covers all aspects of Civil War history, from the battlefields to the home fronts, and features guest experts, plus insight from your host as they discuss the most critical period in American history. Now, here is your host, Jerry Prokopovich. This is Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich. The image of the ideal Confederate officer was that of a brave, aristocratic, honorable warrior, always in control of himself and his emotions in victory and defeat. It was an image that many white Southern men held in high regard and strove to project in public. But in private, they saw themselves quite differently, especially as their world collapsed around them during and after the war. What was behind that mask? We'll ask James J. Brumall, author of Private Confederacies, The Emotional Worlds of Southern Men as Citizens and Soldiers, tonight on Civil War Talk Radio. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Are you ready for a disaster? If you are like many people in the world, that answer may sadly be no. Disasters happen unexpectedly to people just like you every day. Tune into Preparing for the Unexpected with business continuity and disaster planning expert Alex Fullick. The show will not only help you better prepare for a disaster itself, but also to prepare you, your place of employment, and community for the aftermath. Emotionally, financially, and with a better level of awareness and a stronger feeling of resiliency. Tune in Thursdays at 9 a.m. Eastern Time, 6 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. We're making it easier to listen to the Voice America Talk Radio Network wherever you go. In addition to listening live, you can check out information about your favorite talk show hosts, discover new talk show personalities, add shows to your list of favorites, and listen to all of our show archives on demand, all from your iOS, Amazon Kindle, or Android device. Download it from the Apple App Store, Amazon, or Google Play, and get ready to tune in. The Voice America mobile app, powered by Aircast. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu dot edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z-G at E-C-U dot E-D-U. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. And welcome to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich. It is a very pleasant evening in uh, October of 2019 as we come to you from the Civil War Talk Radio World Headquarters Annex in the field in on Oxford Road in Brook Valley neighborhood of Greenville, North Carolina, not on the campus of East Carolina University, just a few miles away, and not speaking for ECU tonight or any night, always just for myself, and my guest will do the same for himself. Well, tonight I'm uh, broadcasting from home, not far from campus. Uh, where there is only one story this week, uh, here in the first week of October 2019. It's not the football team beating Old Dominion last week. 
It's not even the football team playing Temple tomorrow night on ESPN, national television. I'll be there. Look for me. Uh, I'll be wearing a black uh, uh, ECU shirt. Uh, it's a blackout night, so 40,000 of us may be wearing those, uh, but but me too, so maybe you'll be able to pick me out in the crowd. But that's not the story. The big story this week on campus is our interim chancellor, Dan Gerlach, uh, who was seen uh, last week, I think it was a week ago tonight, last Wednesday, at a campus bar in the evening where he was uh, photographed and videotaped doing things like drinking a beer, uh, dancing with a student, and uh, uh, hanging out in general. And uh, for this, he has been put on administrative leave by the UNC system because uh, students are not high-rolling donors. They don't pay a huge amount. Well, they pay a lot of money to go to school, but they don't donate large amounts of money. And if donating doesn't give you exclusive access to the chancellor, if the chancellor is going to just hang out with students and let them talk to him directly, you know, what will become of us? So uh, the the campus is, is buzzing with this. On Twitter, I'm told... Uh, the student comments are running approximately 99 to 1, maybe 100 to 0 in favor of the chancellor. Uh, the faculty likes him. Uh, he, he's an interim chancellor. We've only had him for uh, less than a year. The contrast to the previous chancellor, a uh, very, uh, well, I, once, I was always taught by uh, my mother not to say anything at all if I didn't have anything nice to say, so we'll, we'll move on. Um, but uh, the, the interim chancellor is popular with the students. The faculty find him refreshing in his straightforwardness. He has fixed the illusion of financial trouble by showing we're actually in pretty good shape here at ECU. Uh, all good things, and that means the board of governors president who has control over the chancellor must be looking for a way to get rid of him and replace him with someone uh, more traditional, more suited. So we'll see. Can can somebody survive in the, the era of, of video exposés, the indignity of being videotaped, uh, drinking and dancing? Which, to be sure, is probably not the best judgment. Uh, uh, but as, as public sins go, uh, it, it seems his, his, his willingness to uh, just be a regular guy, and maybe you don't want that in the chancellor, I don't know, but... Uh, uh, there's there's a it, it it was broadcast as breaking news chancellor caught in compromising pictures and I my heart sank and when I saw what they were I said well he's not a very good dancer but and yeah maybe drinking beer on a Wednesday night with students isn't a great example to set but man you you just can't do anything so I, maybe I should not go to the football game tomorrow night now that I think about it I might be videotaped. Uh, standing up and cheering after a pirate touchdown if we, in fact, score one against Temple. In more academic things, there's lots lots of other stuff going on. We have a great exhibit on campus right now dealing with the, uh, the imagery of the civil rights movement, uh, tying in with last week's show on the use of photography to portray enslaved people before and during the war. And how that affected public opinion. Uh, there, there's a great exhibit in our library this month on the same thing happening during the 
civil rights era. So if you're in Greenville uh, to see a football game or anything else, don't don't fail to stop by the library. But we're here to talk Civil War tonight. Let's move on. Uh, we'll be talking about it not just tonight, but next week and the week after, and so on, many weeks. Next week, uh, our guest will be Joe Goodbody, writing about Parker H. French, uh, a man known as the Kentucky Barracuda, and we'll find out why. On the 16th, we'll move from Kentucky to North Carolina, talk with Hampton Newsom in his new book, The Fight for the Old North State. Civil War in North Carolina, January to May, 1864. We'll stay at the end of the war with S.C. Gwynn, uh, new book, Hymns of the Republic, story of the final year of the American Civil War, and finish out the month of October 2019 uh, with a return visit from uh, Kevin Levin, whose new book, Searching for Black Confederates, Civil War's Most Persistent Myth, uh, is Certainly a topic, a timely one and an interesting one. I've already seen occasional negative references to the book where people totally mistake what he's trying to do. They think he's actually trying to find black Confederates to uh, uh, to bolster this this myth. When of course it's just quite the opposite. Uh, but we'll talk with more. We'll talk with him all about that on October 30th. On November 6th, John Grady will be our guest. He's the author of a book about Matthew Fontaine Maury, the father of oceanography, but also a Confederate naval officer. And on the 13th of November, Philip Gerard brings us back to North Carolina with his book, The Last Battleground, The Civil War Comes to North Carolina. We'll have more the rest of November, beginning of December, and as we move into the new year, I promise we will balance out with a few uh, northern federal topics as well. It, I, do, I don't systematically plan out the year's season in advance. We just see what books come across the threshold, what publishers are interested in sending to Civil War Talk Radio, or what books I am tempted to buy using money that you send me through the Civil War Book Fund, which you can reach at www.impedimentsofwar.org. You can find out who's going to be on the show, who's been on the show. You can get links to every past show, just about. And there's a PayPal button where you can donate to the Civil War TR at AOL.com PayPal fund. It is known as a Civil War talk radio book fund, but in fact, they can also use it to buy some tiny one to 144 scale World War I airplane models, if I wish. I may have done that this past week. I could use it to help replace the sewer line, the septic system in our front yard that failed this week with a new connection to the city sewer in the street, which will take uh, uh, quite a few donations, I have to say. Uh, I could do anything with that fund. It's not a charitable fund. It's not tax deductible. It's just a way of showing your appreciation and uh, for the show, and I certainly appreciate those of you who do contribute, and indeed anyone who takes time to listen. Tonight we're listening to uh, the story of a really interesting new book, Private Confederacies, The Emotional Worlds of Southern Men as Citizens and Soldiers. The author is James J. Brumall. Uh, I'm happy to bring him onto the show. We've been talking about this since the Civil War Institute Conference in June. Uh, indeed, not the one this year, but the one the year before, where, where we first got to chat with each other. Jim, welcome to Civil War Talk Radio. 
thank you so much for having me, Jerry. I uh, deeply appreciate it, and I'm a listener, uh, so um, thank you. I'm happy to be here. Well, I'm very glad to, to have you here. Uh, tell listeners a bit about your, your day job when you're not uh, here on the show or writing books. Uh, just before the show, we, we were chatting briefly about uh, teaching. Uh, where do you teach? Sure. I'm an associate professor of history at Shepherd University, and there I also direct uh, the George Tyler Moore Center for the Study of the Civil War. And it's um, housed in a historic structure right in the middle of town. Shepherdstown is incredibly small. And we do a variety of public programming throughout the year, and we have an annual seminar, a much smaller version of CWI, that we'll be hosting actually next week. And we'll be taking mm-hmm. the instances to Monocacy, uh, Fort Duncan outside of Harper's Ferry, uh, the Forts of D.C., and then finally Cool Spring Battlefield, which is now owned by Shenandoah University. So this is the George Tyler Moore Civil War Center at mm-hmm. Shepherd University. This is Shepherdstown, West Virginia. So, relate that to Civil War landmarks for, for the listeners. You know Antietam Battlefield, whereas the crow flies five miles south of Antietam, and we're about 12 miles west of Harper's Ferry, and just about an hour's drive to either Winchester or Gettysburg. So, we are literally in the crossroads. Um, we have an immense amount of uh, history at our, at our town, and then we're surrounded by just a series of wonderful resources and historic sites and national parks. And so... Um, I try to, to use those resources almost on a weekly basis, either by running, hiking, or taking my kids out. So um, we're quite well situated, and we're able to get our students out in this area um, on a series of field experiences each semester. And so um, we're quite fortunate to be where we are. That, that sounds like just a wonderful location. I'm embarrassed to admit, as many times as I've been to Antietam and Harper's Ferry, I've Never been to your university, but I will fix that uh, this this coming summer. I'll, I'll be up there in the area a couple of times. I'll have to come by and visit the campus, and, and if you're there, we'll maybe get a cup of coffee. Um, we might be able to get you on campus for a speaking engagement too, Jerry. So Hey, count me in. I'm all, always interested in that. Um, what, what you've written about here is a topic uh, that the, the subtitle – Read it again. The emotional worlds of Southern men as citizens and soldiers. Uh, on the one hand, you might say, uh, a listener might say, well, you know, I'm interested in Confederate soldiers. I've read Life of Johnny Reb, Bill Wiley. I've read uh, other books, uh, Joe Gladhar's books about Lee's army. But why do I need to know about what's inside? Uh, is, is that really... A, a worthwhile topic for a Civil War historian to explore? I would say it is because what I'm most invested in is how my work interfaces actually the ones they just cited. So I'm very much in conversation with, with Wiley and Glatar and, and Carmichael and others. But what I think those works don't do, and nor is it their essential aim, is to really investigate how the experience of war changes these individuals. And so audiences listening to Civil War Talk Radio, I imagine, like myself, spend a lot of time on Civil War battlefields. They think a lot about the movements of the troops, the tactics, um, how the fights unfold. But I would encourage them to stop and think about what exactly this does to the individual. How are they processing this rather traumatic, traumatic experience? How is it in turn shaping their understanding of their comrades? And how is it, probably most importantly, 
going to impact their relationships with those at home. And, and so for me, um, the soldier's experience must be put into a social and cultural context to have a holistic understanding. And I think without that, we do disservice to, to, to really contextualizing um, the experience of war and, and, again, the transformations enacted by this central experience. Um, so I think the book in many ways complements the works that um, you've cited and many others, and I think it's in conversation with them. Um, but, but it is a very different type of history. I'm not writing military history. I am writing almost explicitly social or cultural history. So I think the take that I offer is, is, is quite different um, than probably uh, what one might expect from a you know, study of soldiers. And I, I'll be interesting to, to follow along how this is received because uh, those of us who came up studying military history, uh, I found this you know, a welcome and interesting new angle. Uh, many people in the academy who study uh, social and cultural issues tend to shy away from military topics. Uh, will they be brought into the Civil War orbit, perhaps, by reading this? Uh, one can hope. What we're going to do now is take a, a short break and come back and talk about just what this transformation was like, what you found, uh, Jim. So we'll do that after just a, a quick step away. Tonight we're talking with Jim Brumall, author of Private Confederacies, The Emotional Worlds of Southern Men as Citizens and Soldiers. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, and this is Civil War Talk Radio. Stimulating talk it gets those synapses in your brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. Have we got a high-energy, all-access sports show for you? It's Outside the Huddle, starring Lemond Williams. Each week, join Lemond as he takes callers, discusses the week's top stories in the world of sports, and sits down with active and former players to discuss their transition from sports to business. Outside the Huddle is a great resource for players making career transitions both on and off the field. Tune in Wednesdays at 8 p.m. Eastern, 7 Central, and 5 Pacific. Pacific for Outside the Huddle on the Voice America Sports Channel. Psych Up Live with host Dr. Suzanne Phillips offers a psychological perspective on coping with common and current life issues. This show addresses topics as varied as marital stress, insomnia, depression, raising teens, campus violence, and building self-resilience. Listen in as Dr. Phillips and her guest experts share the latest in books, findings, and information that will inform and enhance your life journey. Psych Up Live is heard every Thursday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time, 11 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have you had a chance to check out Voice America's online magazine and blog? If you love our hosts and shows, check out articles that give an even deeper perspective, plus topics about health and fitness, movie reviews, philosophy, business tips and tactics, spirituality, positive thought, current events, and even more about your favorite hosts. It's just a click away at blog.voiceamerica.com. That's blog.voiceamerica.com. The Voice America Press Blog. All access all the time streaming live the leader in internet talk radio voiceamerica.com you are listening to civil war talk radio 
If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu dot edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z-G at ecu dot edu. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. Welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich. Talking tonight with James J. Brumall, author of Private Confederacies, The Emotional Worlds of Southern Men as Citizens and Soldiers. Uh, Jim, you spoke in the first segment about looking at how the war transformed Southern men who fought in it. Uh, and the notion of transformation implies starting with what, what, where, where they came from. What is the, how did Southern men perceive themselves before the war? What what was a Southern, uh, what, what was the nature of Southern manhood uh, in the antebellum period? Sure, I, I think there's there's two ways to look at this. On the one hand, there's a very strong public facade which you um, mentioned in your introduction, in which men are very much defined by public postures and poses. They're closed off. I think the assumption is that white Southern men are, are prickly and have uh, a quick temper, are very likely to engage in a fight or a duel with their fellows. And I think there is a lot of truth to that. And Bertram White Brown and Southern Honor, of course, portrays that incredibly well. Mm-hmm. White Brown and others also show that there is actually this emotional depth, um, intellectualism, uh, religiosity, and... Um, deep emotional veins that run through these men as well. But that's generally reserved for private correspondence and private relationships. And so the public persona of Southern men stands true, but we must also understand this other side. And so that's one of the big working assumptions going into this project is is how you can kind of merge those two worlds, especially in the midst of this, this tumultuous, almost crisis experience and how, in turn, both of those arenas start to change because of those experiences. Now, you get at the the inner half of that, the the, the feelings, the the emotions, the expressions of, of Southern men uh, by extensively quoting letters that they write, uh, diaries, and journals that they keep. Is is this an run the risk of being an anecdotal history? This is a methodological question. How do you know you have the right Southern men? You know, James McPherson looks at 30,000 letters before he writes for Cause and Comrades. Uh, Most of us can't do that. So how do you know you've got a good sample? I think I knew I had a good sample when I started to find the same themes in the different letters and diaries that I read. And, mm-hmm. and so this started out as a dissertation, and I spent a lot of time at the, the big Southern archives, UNC, UVA, Duke, um, State Archives in Raleigh, and so on. And I didn't actually go in with any sort of working assumptions, nor did I go in with a very clear argument. I just had a series of questions. And mm-hmm. in many instances, a lot of the evidence that I found initially surprised me. And so I tried to read more and more sources to understand if what they were saying resonated. And... You know, I will say at the outset, the study sample, if I can even use that term, is skewed by by class and by race, by literacy and by life experience. And I think um, that's a working assumption of the book. You have to you have to you know basically understand that this is a very specific group that I'm looking at. Um, but the trends that I do uncover within 
the writings that I, I, I studied seemed to resonate across time and space. And so therefore, I saw great validity to what specific individuals were saying. And I in turn used um, specific figures who I hoped I could follow throughout pockets of the, the project as the kind of representative voices. Um, but, you know, I, I do appreciate um, not so much this anecdotal, but um, questions of representation can can definitely be asked. And, and I would say that, um, you know, what is representative first? Um, mm -hmm. What's the, the, you know, what's the stereotypical quintessential white Southern man? But, but more importantly, as long as you understand the qualifications to the, to the study group, that I think the themes that I, I, I rehearse and, and, and argue resonate among that group well. So you talk about the, the qualities of manhood that are expressed publicly by this group that you're studying. And then, of course, you get to the part that is the reason why we're talking here tonight, the Civil War. Uh, these men go to war, and many of their, their uh, you know, beliefs and uh, certainties are going to be tested. One of the first things you, you write about in the chapter when you, you bring these men into the war uh, that certainly got my attention was the clothing that they wear, the uniforms, uh, because military uniforms are, are something that people have studied from many different angles. You know, Bell Wiley certainly did write about them, uh, miniature war gamers who paint tiny figures, uh, ag agonize over what percentage of a regiment would be in butternut and what percentage would be in a more gray uniform. Uh, I have still not gotten over my disappointment uh, in that angle from when I read Fifty Shades of Gray and found it had nothing to do with Confederate uniforms. Uh, I, I cannot resist telling that joke every other week, I'm afraid. Uh, but it, in fact, uh, you have a lot to say about what uniforms meant to these men. Uh, what, what, if, what impact did it have on them to be in uniform. Yeah, yeah, no, and I, and again, I, I didn't go in looking for that. I mean, I have a background in museum studies. Um, mm -hmm. I became very interested in material culture while in grad school, and you know, I, I interned at a series of museums, and so kind of stuff, artifacts have always interested me. But again, they, the, these, these letters started saying a lot about clothing, a lot about equipment, a lot about how they thought about these things. And so that, to me, signaled that this must be something of significance. And, and there's, there's two arguments within, within that uh, specific theme that I look at. And the first is, especially in the early phase of the war, men maintained you know, material connections to the home front um, by the clothing that women um, and communities produced for them. And there's a North Carolinian in there who, who says essentially, our men want uniforms from those women at home more than any others. We appreciate those the most. And so there's this nice connection between these two separated arenas and men correspond and sometimes at great length talking to the folks at home who in turn are, are filling all these requisitions. But then what I also want to sort of argue is that over time, men start to transform more into from soldiers to veterans. And there's actually a nice parallel with that too, because by the midpoint of the war, if not a bit earlier, the Confederate government had then created enough infrastructure that they in turn were able to begin equipping the men with, with some degree of uniforms. And so increasingly, the ties to home, at least the material ties to home, are cut and men rely more heavily upon government-issued clothing, 
which also signal this broader transformation that they themselves are experiencing. Now, again, the officer class, the extremely wealthy, they, they still have communication with home and the home front is able in many instances among that group to continue supplying. But to the yeoman, um, farmers, it, it, the few that I did look at, I mean, the material deprivations that they experience on the home front are profound. And there are these in- instances in which men are sending back home shoes, shirts, drawers, all these things that they think the home front can use that they have in excess. And, oh, sorry, go ahead. No, I would say that, that was a surprising finding that, that uh, you know, we think of Lee's you know, miserables, all starving and ragged. And here are soldiers, actually, they've got uniforms all they need, and they're sending clothing back back to the home farm. That that was quite interesting. And in that particular instance, that's Hill Fitzpatrick is one of the great examples of that. And, and Hill Fitzpatrick comes from the upcountry of Georgia and is extremely poor. He's a non-slaveholder, definitely in the ranks of a yeoman farmer. And he was one among several that I found, but I mean, that was even further illustrative to me, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, just because there is, you know, this is someone who is on, on fallen on hard times and, and shouldn't have much excess, but in fact does. And a lot of that mythology of the ragged rebel was used in the post-war period as part of that larger myth- lost cause mythology. And there are veterans who do talk about that, that this wasn't in fact a, a myth and that um, there's a lot of government records uh, in Washington, D.C. and beyond that really substantiate the claims, um, just the, the, the sheer quantities of the stuff that's being um, issued to Lee's men and, and states specifically like North Carolina had become incredibly efficient and effective at uh, home production and were able to supply their men incredibly well, um, basically through the end of the war. So the, by the end of the war, the men are, are looking like soldiers. Uh, you also talk about how the, the experience of war brings into conflict these ideas of what a Southern gentleman is supposed to be, uh, you know, individualistic, independent. Uh, you can't be that way when you're packed in with 50,000 other guys uh, and, and all living in a camp. That has to change the way they see themselves. That's exactly right. And you know, I, I became very interested in that specific avenue because to me that was one of the largest changes that these men would have to go through if if what we understand about antebellum the antebellum era is true which i think it is then that means almost all those markers of identity had to to be stripped away in some cases or had to bend in other cases and as a result that kind of new models of masculinity emerge and for those men who are in the enlisted ranks low-ranking officers ncos in every case, their life is highly regimented from the time in which they get up, the time in which they eat, to the duties that they have to do, the, the drill that they have to perform, um, the control of their bodies, all of these things, they are subordinated. And in the slaveholding South, there's a lot of specific connotations associated with that subordination and what that concept means. And, and white Southern manhood, of course, in the antebellum era, was grounded upon the subordination of others, those they deemed, you know, quote unquote, dependents, the enslaved women and children. And for many of these men now, they are not placed in that position, of course, because they're still privileged by race and class and gender, but they are having to bend their wills to that of a higher 
governing body. And that creates, I think, a lot of consternation and a lot of tension, especially in the war's early years, 61 and 62. A lot of men have trouble adapting to that lifestyle. Some ultimately decide to leave the army entirely through desertion. Some, I think, uh, have continual flare-ups with the officer class and they're negotiating their positions. But I think the vast majority, especially of Lee's Army in Northern Virginia, to some extent surrender that independence because they understand the necessity the absolute necessity, the dire necessity of having this strong morale, this esprit de corps, and once they are on the battlefield, they can see how all of that regimentation matters so much and the execution of the, the movements on the field and the precision that's required. And um, in many cases, the victories that they meet are because of all that training they had to, that they had to endure in many cases, for, for months and months and months. The sheer boredom associated with that does come to fruition on the battlefield, which in turn, I think, leaves them believing this is an absolute necessity for their Now, the, the battlefield is, it brings this idea of, of challenging pre-war models of behavior into even sharper focus, because if the, the southern gentleman on his pre-war plantation is all about control, control of others, control of himself, uh, the battlefield is the very absence of control, that, that there, there's chaos, there's just complete you know, mayhem taking place. Uh, as, as Gerald Linderman has argued, the soldiers realize uh, as the war goes on, there's no connection between virtue, bravery, and survival. Uh, it's, it's not like the good are rewarded and the weak are punished. Bullets don't seem to care who they hit. And uh, just uncertainty and randomness rules. How do they cope with that? So, and that's exactly right. That's exactly right. I, there is, of course, this strong understanding of providence and a religiously structured world. And, mm-hmm. and so, in some sense, these men do surrender themselves to God. They have a very specific belief system that guides them and gives them comfort, gives them comfort in the most dire of circumstances and situations. What I would, what I suggest in the book, though, is that for an 18-year-old, that was a belief system that they had. They may have rehearsed in church, and they may have sincerely believed it, but it was never tested in the antebellum era. Mm-hmm. But once they got onto the battlefield, the Peninsula Campaign, Second Manassas, Antietam, Fredericksburg, time and time again, that belief system is being tried and tested and it's leaving many bewildered and confused. Because as you say, why is it that my longtime friend and comrade is hit by the mini ball, but the other one just nicks me? Why is it that the artillery shell landed where it did? They have no control over that. And that, to me at least, must have been the most taxing, difficult situation to process and understand. And I think what was so interesting in some cases is the revelations that many of these men were willing to make to their mothers, to their sisters, to their fathers and brothers, where they were trying to communicate some of the horrors that they had experienced on the battlefield. In many instances, they still say, you can fully never understand this. I hope that you never see it. But I believe they're so shaken by these experiences, so traumatized in some cases by these experiences, that they're desperately trying to communicate these battlescapes to to their loved ones, the charred bodies, the blasted landscapes, the bloated bodies. I mean, these are things that I think are indelibly etched upon their minds. And as you as you say, 
the uncertainty that comes with that was transformative. It didn't create atheists necessarily, but it did, I think, promote a lot of questioning as to how this world's unfolding, who is truly in control, and whatever certitude, independence, self-will that they had in the antebellum era was at least called into question among some, but also entirely broken among at least a minority. Those who ultimately do desert, those who ultimately can't process these events, those who ultimately do succumb to depression or in the worst of circumstances commit suicide in the wartime or post-war eras. Well, the post-war era is one we definitely want to talk about in the next segment. I'll just say as we go out here that I found it particularly interesting how you looked at uh, the letters you decided back to families at home. Uh, You expressly say you're going to look not at what they did on the battlefield. Plenty of people have done that. But what they said about the battlefield, not not testing rates of desertion or uh, casualty rates or anything measurable to see how did the battles affect them and their behavior, but how did they express themselves about it? And in that sense, uh, this book does, I think, break some new ground. We're going to take another break. We'll come back talk about the uh, reaction to defeat in the post-war era with our guest tonight, James J. Brumall. He's the author of Private Confederacies, The Emotional Worlds of Southern Men as Citizens and Soldiers. I'm Jerry Prokopovich. This is Civil War Talk Radio. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Attention. If you're a parent, educator, social worker, or civic or religious leader, the most important program you'll hear this week is Exploited, Crimes Against Humanity. Host Opal Singleton and her guest show how our children and others are being dangerously lured by predators through the dark web, social media apps, and games. Beyond that, the program looks at trends in human trafficking and more. You'll never think of the Internet the same way again. Listen Thursdays at 7 a.m. Pacific Time, 10 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. If you think you've seen online TV before, let us surprise you. VoiceAmerica.tv is online now. The leader in live Internet talk radio has done it again. Multiple channels, a state-of-the-art viewing experience, live and on-demand programs streaming 24 hours a day. It's exactly what you want, when you want it. VoiceAmerica.tv. From health and wellness to business, sports, and everything in between. Discover our new world. Visit VoiceAmerica.tv now and experience the future of online television. VoiceAmerica.tv. These days, everyone is looking for information on staying young, healthy, and fit. The Voice America Health and Wellness Network is here to help you on your quest to better health and a better you. We talk about everything from diet, fitness, and aging to substance abuse, personal growth, mental health, and much more. Learn from our experts who cover health and wellness from traditional and holistic perspectives. Tune in to the Voice America Health and Wellness Network. Healthy living starts here. Stimulating talk it gets those synapses in your brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu.edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z-G 
at ecu.edu. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. And welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, talking tonight with Jim Brumall, author of Private Confederacies, The Emotional Worlds of Southern Men as Citizens and Soldiers. Uh, Jim, before we get to the post-war era, which I thought was a very important part of the book, uh, when you describe the Gettysburg campaign or, or the reactions of some of the Confederate soldiers to the Gettysburg campaign, you cite the letters of uh, John Futch, a Confederate soldier whose, whose brother Charles was killed uh, in the battle. And as I was reading that, I said, I know that guy from somewhere. And if, uh, then I remembered it uh, in Peter Carmichael's book on the, the common soldier in the Civil War that just came out uh, in the past year. He also uses quite extensively the letters of, of, of John Futch. You know, Pete, uh, as you indicate in the acknowledgments, did you know that he was using the same set of letters? Did you guys talk about those? Or is it just these were great letters and you both found them and both used them? So um, as I was working on this project, uh, Pete sent me, well, this, this actually goes back to when I was in grad school. He had my wife transcribe um, the letters, the fudge letters, oh. mm-hmm. and that I didn't think much of them um, because I, I wasn't looking at them at the time as a project that he had uh, crafted with her. And then some years later, as I was working on transforming the dissertation into a book, he said, you need to go to Raleigh and look at these letters for yourself. And um, I'm not sure if you've had the opportunity to see them. They are digitized, but seeing the originals, you know, as you know, is, is a much more meaningful experience. And mm-hmm. I had never seen a letter collection like it. So Pete, Pete, was the one that told me to go see them. And then um, I was more than happy to incorporate them into the project. I mean, he uses them in, in different ways and much more mm-hmm. extensively. But I would encourage any student of the Civil War era to visit the State Archives websites and to go through the Lara Collection. It's an absolutely heartbreaking story. Pete tells it incredibly well. And it's distilled uh, in a Civil War Times piece that he uh, published, I think, almost a year ago now. Um, but just incredible letters. And if I may very quickly, mm-hmm. Futch is one of the figures who who experiences the type of trauma because of battle that suggests some sort of deeper psychological wound. And uh, what's so revelatory about that specific collection is he's probably either transitionally literate or non-literate. He's having other people write all of his letters for him they themselves have varying degrees of literacy. And once you start reading them, though, they, they strip away all the excesses that are typically found in middle and upper class letters, and they get right to the point in, in very poignant terms. And, and, and John was absolutely heartbroken by Charlie's death and eventually succumbs to, to serious psychological ailments from what he even t- says to his family. He describes himself as being half crazy he says that he can't eat. He's he's clearly deeply, deeply traumatized from these experiences. And so um, one of the reasons that Pete and I refuse those letters is they probably actually voice a much more common set of assertions than we might otherwise find. But they're just such an incredible treasure trove that they've survived and that they're representative of this class that was making up at least 50 to 60 percent of the Army of Northern Virginia. Um so, again, I would encourage any of your listeners to, to go to, to the State Archives uh, website and, and to, to see those layers and, and to pursue Pete's work, which is absolutely exquisite, of course. 
It, it, it really is. It's an important book. Uh, and it, there, there's a whole uh, renaissance almost of, of studies of individual soldiers and, and what, uh, you know, learning about their lives in a, a fuller way than we have before. Uh, and, and your book certainly is a, a major part of that now. Now, one point that you make strongly through just through the structure of the book is that the war does not end at Appomattox. Uh, anyone listening to the show knows that that was not the last major surrender of a Confederate army. But more significantly, the the men's lives go on, and they have to continue processing this. Uh, I was very interested to read your description of what goes on over the next month or two after the surrender of Lee's army and then Johnston's army as these Confederate troops demobilize, as they, they go back home, they they basically walk there and nobody's feeding them or caring for them and the result is a, a breakdown of social order that I don't think is widely uh, uh, written about in the literature. No. Um and uh, again, I, I owe a bit of this to Pete. Um, I started this as a as a, a small paper and turned into a big piece of my dissertation that became a big part of the book. And there's very little scholarship out there. Uh, Carrie Janey from UVA is working on mm-hmm. this currently. Um, but when I was uh, starting this research, there was an article or two, uh, very little else. And when you go into the records, what you find among Union uh, soldiers especially is that they're coming into this vacuum of power. They're, you know, quote-unquote occupying soldiers trying to restore some sense of order. And in many rural areas especially, but even in cities, there's just a complete breakdown of, of, of law and order. And in, in many cases, they're attacking commissary stores. They're attacking core master depots. We, of course, associate this violence with 1863 and the profound uh, politicalization of white Southern women across the South. But there's a similar resurgence of this type of violence in 1865, as these worlds are quite literally, at least for white Southerners, collapsing. And in many cases, they're taking their animus out um, on these symbols of, of both federal and Confederate authority. And once the military collective is disbanded, These are men that have been through, again, some horrific experiences. They're well-trained, well-armed, and then they're kind of let loose into the countryside. And this is also where we see the beginnings of uh, the creation of Black Codes. We see the suppression of freed peoples almost immediately upon the dawn of freedom. Um, It's just this moment of tremendous tumult. And if you think about that chaos as soldiers' entry into the post-war period— it's an important framing device in thinking about how they in turn are trying to reintegrate into these civilian worlds. And in some cases it is seamless. And I, I cite those men, of course, and they, they go home. They don't think much else about it. They close off their diaries and seemingly the war has been suppressed or is, has been almost a point of pride. But there are also countless other individuals who are reentering civilian society in the midst of, of great tumult and change of which in some cases they themselves are agents. And especially in places like North Carolina, where the demobilized Army of Northern Virginia is meeting the still mobilized Army of Tennessee. There's clashes in Greensboro and beyond, um, right on the cusp of Johnston's surrender. And then in the six months that follow, as you say, uh, 
some of these soldiers turn into ad hoc police forces and are trying to create some sort of semblance of law and order in the midst of this, again, tumult and lack of real political establishment because of the fall of one government and the attempt to create a new one in, in, its, in its stead. So, so you've got these these soldiers from Lee's army. Some of them form these, these marauding bands. They're they're you know they find a government storehouse and they say we need that stuff. And Confederacy doesn't need it anymore. We're just going to take it. Uh, but once you start taking property, it, it once that line is crossed, uh, then you've got this widespread lawlessness. And then you've got Johnston's men. Some of them you know before the surrender, they're actually shooting at some of these these roving bands who are shooting back. Uh, it really is a, a, a crazy time. Uh, and then you have the, these groups forming informal you know, vigilante groups to try to restore order. And that leads us uh, very quickly to the vigilante groups that everybody knows about in Reconstruction, particularly the Ku Klux Klan. Uh, you write quite a bit about the Klan as as it relates to Confederate veterans, what, what is the connection? In, in many cases, and again, the documentation of the Klan is extremely difficult. Um, you know, members remained anonymous in, both, in most cases, although there is voluminous testimony um, of African-Americans and, and white unionists that is uh, spread across several volumes for each state. Um, so there are named individuals in there, but there are are some clear examples, and I'm relying a bit upon the work of Otto Olson and, and Scott Nelson and others, in which uh, rosters, defined rosters of the Klan, are matching up in some cases to military rosters of Confederate regiments. And so members of regiments become the ground troops or the shock troops of the Ku Klux Klan. Members of the officer class, in turn, are becoming members of the hierarchy of, of orders of the Klan. And given the rates of Klan membership in places like the Piedmont, North Carolina, the upcountry of South Carolina, the, the correlation is matches up incredibly well. So if you have thousands and thousands and thousands of Klansmen, as you, as you do in the Piedmont, North Carolina, or the upcountry of South Carolina, and you know the, the rates of military mobilization in those areas were 75 or 80 percent, that white male population is clearly involved in both of those organizations. Moreover, we have very clear imagery, very clear phrasing, very clear symbols that are used by the Ku Klux Klan that are drawn from the wartime experiences of the South. So they have code words like Shiloh and Manassas. Um, they use Confederate iconography and imagery in some cases. There's, there's, just, there's a very clear correlation between, and again, not in every case, but in some cases, men who were Confederate veterans were likewise members of the Ku Klux Klan in uh, 1868 to 1870, 1871. Now, the, the, the people, the soldiers coming home are trying, uh, you talk about how they're trying to reframe uh, ideals of manhood, what it means to be uh, masculine, to be male in an environment where you've just lost a war. Uh, where you've, you're clearly not the master, uh, the other side beat you. And, and the organizations like the Klan, with its secrecy, uh, seem to give some, some opportunity for that. Uh, and in, in particular, it seems to me you argue that the, the rituals, the, uh, the masking, uh, the behaviors of the Klan, <coughs> excuse me, uh, are, are ways of acting out what these men can't say about their experience. 
That's exactly right. And you know, <laughs> in the post-war period, the white Southern women um, assume overtly political roles uh, because in many cases, men can't do so. <laughs> these men are emasculated on a number of different fronts, in their minds at least. And one of the ways that they seek redress is through organizations like the Ku Klux Klan and other paramilitary um, groups in which they tr they try to restore, quote-unquote, the proper social order. Again, that those aren't my words. They're, they're theirs. Um, but that's the means of resolution because this is a world that's been profoundly overturned for white Southerners. They're, they're left reeling. They're left trying to comprehend uh, the scale and sense of loss. And they're trying to regain some semblance of, again, in their minds, proper social racial order. And um, the recourse, which can't be political in many cases, ultimately is through the lens or the means of violence. And so these are very deadly organizations that prove extremely effective. And the types of brotherhoods that are created by the wartime experiences in turn underpin the organization of the Ku Klux Klan. There's a lot of correlation, again, between um, these kind of homosocial environments, these all-male um, arenas uh, between the, the soldier groups and then later the uh, paramilitary groups. I was also struck reading this how by the time we get to the the late post-war era the beginning of the 20th century how the confederate veteran has been idealized and in fact turns back into the pre-civil war uh, <laughs> southern model the you know, silent and enduring and independent and uh, ragged if necessary but all the things that were tested and in many cases transformed by the war uh, are, are no longer talked about or are forgotten. But that is uh, a, a deeper issue, which as much as I'd like to go into it, uh, we can't do because, Jim, we are out of time. Uh, always happens too fast on the show. There is much more in the book. Listeners, you will want to read it. It's It's not a long book, but it's got a lot packed in it. It's called Private Confederacies, The Emotional Worlds of Southern Men as Citizens and Soldiers. James J. Brumall is the author, and he's been our guest tonight. Uh, Jim, thanks for being on the show. Jerry, I deeply appreciate it, and thank you to your listeners for tuning in, and um, best wishes as you, as you move forward with your um, issues on ECU's campus, which I've been <laughs> through, through the chronological oh. <laughs> there, there we go. All right. Well, thank you again. And listeners, as always, thank you for listening to Civil War Talk Radio. Thank you for embarking on a part of American history this week. Civil War Talk Radio with Jerry Prokopovich can be heard live every Wednesday at 4 p.m. Pacific Time, 7 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have a good week. Thank you.